0: University of Colorado. For many families in the metro area, safe, adequate housing is a dream, and limited access to transportation is a nightmare. Today on CU on the Air, we're talking to CU Denver's Carrie McCarrowitz, Associate Professor of Urban and Regional Planning in the College of Architecture and Planning, about the housing and commuting crises and what's in the works to remedy them. Makarowitz studies the interactions among public investments and development, and how public policies affect human development through household income, accessible and safe neighborhoods, housing affordability, health and well-being, access to regional opportunities, and environmental quality. Carrie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the field of urban planning? It took
1: me a long time to find the field. So I grew up in Michigan in the 70s and 80s, which is known as a rust belt state. And I saw, you know, declining factories all around me growing up. My mom grew up in Detroit and we went there a lot to visit her relatives and friends. And each year we went back, you know, it just looked worse. You know, there were vacant properties and unkept urban infrastructure. And I had classmates whose, you know, fathers had worked at a factory making seat belts that shut down and would reopen and they were laid off routinely. So it was always like at my heart, like I wanted to do something about, you know, the loss of jobs, the decline in neighborhoods, and I thought I could go into it by working in the business community. So I have an undergraduate in business, but my senior year I did a thesis on community development corporations, and how businesses work with them to do community-based projects, almost like their, the business does philanthropy, but the CDC, the development corporation, does the community work. So I worked in business for a little while, about four and a half years as a business consultant, but I realized it was so <laughs> so different than what I really wanted to do. Yeah. So I went back and got a master's in urban and regional planning.
0: Okay. Well, given your research areas, um, it seems like Denver is a great place for you to be located. For those looking to buy a home, however, the Denver metro area is increasingly cost prohibitive. You were quoted recently as saying, home ownership for even median income individuals and families is totally out of reach. And we're talking about people who, are, who work as teachers, nurses, and police officers. How did this happen? How did we get to this point?
1: There's a lot of different theories, and there's different points in time to pay attention to. A recent report out for the state of Colorado by the Common Sense Institute shows that we didn't continue building the amount of housing we were producing after the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. So when you're not producing enough and people are having children who are growing up and moving out of their homes and needing homes because now they're working, or people are migrating here because we're creating a lot of new jobs and there's not enough housing. Different things happen in the market that prohibit housing to be produced at the levels we need. In some ways, it's the input costs, labor, materials, land, um, getting through the entitlement process with the local government, getting the permits and you know, entitlement, meaning you have permission to build this housing on these sites or one site. And that can take a long time Mm -hmm. Um, and it involves lawyers and accountants and financial analysts and, you know, people going to city meetings and small meetings with the planners and the department agencies and then also, you know, the more public meetings where they're presenting their proposal and getting the approvals. And so that part can take longer and be more costly when we have communities that are worried about growth. They're seeing that their roads are congested. Maybe their classrooms are full. Um, they don't, they're not keeping up with other infrastructure that they would like to see in their communities, or they just like the quiet suburban style life they originally moved into in their community. Right. And so when communities do plans and update their zoning, They hear from people who have been living there a long time and say, we don't need that type of housing in our community. We're a community of single family homes. Right. But people who are in that position don't always have all the information they need because they haven't had to try to move out of their home to see if they could afford to move somewhere else. And so a lot of our housing need is from people who were born here or moved here, maybe mid midlife. I think it's a kind of two part. One is the, there was a contraction, and then the other part of the, the contraction in lending by the banks, they were scared mm-hmm. after the financial crisis and rightly so, they got timid in lending. So it was harder to get capital to build developments, single family homes. And then the last thing I think that we, is really important to point out is the large developers are not doing thorough enough market analyses. They are all chasing the same small segment of the population that has a high income. They all hope that if they build higher priced single family homes and more exclusive communities or higher end luxury apartments that they too will capture that employee at the IT firm who's making over six figures and can spend that kind of money on rent every month, Mm -hmm. $3,000 a month on a two bedroom apartment. But there are just not that many people currently that make that income, and so their vacancies are higher than they should be, and the people who are forced to rent them are paying too much of their income toward housing. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of factors. There's controls against housing development, there's financial issues, there's lack of knowledge by the
0: developers on what they really should be building. I used to live not far from here and I get together with friends who've been here a long time and we're like, look at all these high rise apartments. (laughs) But I think most of us can see that our region is hitting a point where people are suffocating from the Mm -hmm. growth happening here. Mm -hmm. But what are the main problems associated with this rapid growth and some potential solutions?
1: Your home really is a place for you to recuperate every day. You know, when you come home from your job or as your kids are doing their homework. So if we're spending a lot just on the mortgage or rent, then we're not able to invest in all those other things that keep us healthy and sane and productive. That hurts the workforce longer term, which hurts the economy and employers, which hurts schools, too, when students aren't able to come to school prepared. So extreme housing crisis has so many repercussions because of that the balance of income that remains after you've covered your housing costs. Right. Solutions, I looked at the 2019 and 2020 building permits that were pulled by county. So every local planning agency reports to HUD how many building permits every month they've issued. Not every permit turns into a building constructed, but it's usually a pretty high share, probably at least 85% of the permits pool actually come to fruition. Um, so we had about, I think it was 25,000 permits on average between 2019 and 2020 housing units pulled throughout the region, the eight county region, each of those two years. And if you pull out Denver, I think it was 70% of those permits were for single family homes. Oh, that's not the solution. Yeah. Because how many people can afford a single family home? Right. Um, yeah, it was 70% in single family. If you keep Denver in the mix of those eight counties, then it's 59%. Even though not everybody likes seeing these high-rises go up and it changes the landscape, they're not typically going into like a neighborhood in Washington Park. Right. So Denver's building a lot of multifamily units, but the rest of the region is still building mostly single family. So a lot of people are talking about the missing middle. Yeah. And that missing middle is a lot of duplexes and townhomes and row homes more compact shared mm-hmm. walls shared parking in the back shared lawns and maybe some shared amenities i live in a townhome mm-hmm. and i and my you know my my neighbors inside the townhome we all have plenty of space and it allows us to be in a really kind of walkable urban environment it cuts down on our housing costs we occupy a lot less land than yeah. all of the single family homes around us and we're not intrusive in right. terms of, like, the look and feel of our building. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're, like, a huge traffic or people generator coming and going out of it. <laughs> like, and I live across the street from a 90-unit micro-unit development that's five stories. Okay. And I don't see a lot of people coming in and out of that building either. Yeah. If every single family home that was built in those years was replaced by two townhomes, that would have doubled our housing yeah. production. Yep. Um, And it would reduce the amount of land and therefore the amount of traffic, the distance you have to travel to get somewhere. Yeah. As you drive past more and more low density housing,
0: it adds more traffic, more time, more road needs. I'm just fascinated by this. They want their own, you know, castle, basically. They don't want to share a wall. They want the big backyard.
1: I think they do. A lot of my peers have single family homes and, have a bit of a yard to garden in, and they don't have the person who lives below them. Okay. You know, I wear slippers in my home, so I don't <laughs> she doesn't hear me in her kitchen or in her bedroom. That's nice. Um, so there are those things, but, it, you know, there are, you know, design elements. I'm in the College of Architecture and Planning, and I have no design expertise in terms of architecture, but... I mean, they know about it enough to understand that, you know, we can do things to the design of these townhomes so that there is a shared garden space. So that if you want to be able to have your own community garden, you can. Mm-hmm. And that's associated. It's not your own private piece of land, mm-hmm. but you can use it. And there are other strategies, you know, to make the soundproofing better. So I think there are solutions if we really help get down to the preferences that people have for, you know, what? It, why do they want the single family home and how can we Modify some of this higher density, more compact housing to still give them what they want from the single family home without the land consumption and the cost. Because people are moving further and further out to be able to pay for the single family home.
0: I've heard about super commuters who are driving over an hour one way. Right. Yeah. That was
1: just highlighted in the Denver Post the other day from the census numbers. It's been going on for years since the 90s, late 80s. We've seen an uptick in two worker households. And that's changed, but our housing and jobs location and our transportation options have not caught up enough with it. So people make that split decision. Maybe they work in eastern Adams County or Arapahoe or even down in Colorado Springs. One member of the family and then the other worker in the family works up in the Denver region, maybe the Denver Tech Center. Mm-hmm. So they locate somewhere in between and they both take on a long commute <laughs> or Sometimes they locate near one person's job and that person then takes on more household responsibilities because they don't have the extra 90-minute commute every day.
0: That's, that's big. Switching gears a little bit, you have submitted a project to the National Science Foundation's Civic Innovation Challenge titled Undesigning the Red Line and Reimagining Mobility Investments to Equitably Link Jobs, Affordable Housing, and Services, or <laughs> the Valverde Movement Project. Tell us a little bit about the focus and scope of the project. But for starters, where is the Valverde neighborhood? Where is that community located?
1: Yeah, so the, where it's located is part of the reason why we want to work with the community. And we are doing a lot of work to get to know more residents there and did during out through the planning grant process. It's bordered by Highway 6th Avenue Freeway on yeah. the north, I-25 and the Platte River on the east, okay. Alameda on the south, okay. and Federal on the west. Okay. So if you know your, yeah. you know, those streets... It is an island surrounded by highways and arterials. Once you get into the neighborhood, it's quiet and it's mostly single-family homes with some apartments. Denver Housing Authority has a nice community uh, wrapping around a park inside the neighborhood. It's hilly. But to come and go, um, you have to go out to Alameda, Federal, or, you know, you have to get over six on the north. There's one way under it, but right, <laughs> it's pretty landlocked. Yeah.
0: What is redlining and what are its implications? How did it get started?
1: So redlining occurred in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s and even beyond informally. People are still being discriminated against either getting home loans or being allowed to like encourage to buy a home in a community. So what it, what it was was literally red lines drawn on a map, drawn by the Homeowners Loan Corporation at fed the federal level to identify risky places to invest, risky and less risky. Okay. They were almost always exclusively communities of color. And the rule was just do not lend money here. Wow. Um, or you will not be you know backed by the federal deposited um, or other other housing insurance programs. And so people who owned homes or wanted to buy a home in those communities couldn't get any extra money to do so. Meanwhile, other communities, people were getting 30-year mortgages with low interest rates and manageable monthly payments and building wealth and equity in their home because they owned it and were paying off a reasonable 30-year mortgage. Mm. All of these other communities, people could not get money to invest in the home that they owned or to actually buy it. Mm. And so we have generations of families that grew up in those neighborhoods. Maybe they eventually bought a home, but then couldn't get money to repair it over time. Or maybe they never did, were able to buy the home because they couldn't get, you know, that mortgage product has created so much wealth for people who were able to get it over the last, you know, numerous decades. If you didn't have it, then you didn't have a main vehicle of building wealth in the U.S., And so when you see red line communities today, you see, you know, greater health inequities. It was also became the areas in the 60s when transportation planners were saying we needed to continue building the U.S. highway interstate that Eisenhower designed in the 50s through the Highway Act. Where should we put that highway interstate? It was never supposed to go in cities, it was supposed to go around cities, but they started bringing them into cities. Well, let's put it in this neighborhood where the home values aren't worth very much that would be an easy place, not a lot of protest, and it'd be cheap for us to enact an eminent domain to buy up the properties. Mm-hmm. So now you see a place like Valverde surrounded by US Highway Six, Federal Boulevard mm-hmm. on its west, all of the pollution from the traffic, people who grow up in neighborhoods surrounded by high traffic areas like that often have asthma and other respiratory illnesses, maybe cancer because of that. But you know, the stigmatization over the long term, like there's that that the decline in the housing stock then led to other issues, mm-hmm. and other banks wouldn't lend for other things, and no stores wanted to go into those communities. So there are no commercial properties in Val Verde. Then you have to get over Alameda or Federal to get to other commercial or go on those two streets so you have a longer distance to travel to meet your needs, so you may forego the trip or spend a lot of time and money getting there, maybe only go every two weeks when mm-hmm. you need to do go. It would be better if you could go every week. Mm-hmm. So, it's just this spiral and ripple of effects that affects the community long term.
0: So, what are you striving to do with the Valverde movement? What we
1: want to do is reverse the poor health outcomes and the wealth inequities or the lack of wealth in that neighborhood and then use it as a model for other neighborhoods that have similar density. Similar kind of surrounding infrastructure of these major roads, similar housing stock. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's happening in Valverde, like a lot of West Side neighborhoods, is gentrification starting because the home prices are are lower cost and people can people with higher incomes can pick them up. And it's not ex- entirely bad. And it adds new residents who want to be part of the community, get to know their neighborhoods and invest in the properties. But if it's, you know, done by outside corporation that's building single-family homes to rent or high-end you know six flats that you have to have a very high income to afford then you start to see displacement in the community so we're looking at strategies that can help build wealth and improve health. And because it's the civic innovation challenge, the mobility track, the research component that NSF requires has to be around mobility. Okay. Our research and community civic partner team, and there are 30 partners in the project. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I spent my spring on Zoom <laughs> talking to all these partners multiple times throughout every week and bringing in new partners with our partners at the University of Denver okay. and their civic engagement center. And Dr. Cog and RTD in the city and county of Denver, Center for Community Wealth Building, the Neighborhood Association of Valverde, just so many um, workforce nonprofits, the West Denver Renaissance Collaborative, which is focused on housing but moving into mobility. And then also Lyft and Uber because they're bringing in new mobilities to the community. So we were trying to see how do we bring in these new mobilities, a mix of new mobilities and other transportation strategies to this community so they're contextually appropriate but wrapped within like an intersectional view of the way people live their lives. You use transportation because you have to for other reasons, not because you just want to travel. So that's why we brought in people who are focused on the workforce and people who are focused on housing and also people working on food deserts and food co-ops is thinking about how do we look at other needs community members in Valverde have that are not being met and what types of mobility would best Meet those needs within the entire neighborhood of Valverde on the outskirts, where all the jobs are. There's a morning and afternoon work shuttle that RTD runs, but that it doesn't go through the neighborhood where people are living and take them to other transit locations. It's a transit connector. Mm-hmm. If we get the grant, we hope we could spend money on a micro transit shuttle. So it would be a shuttle kind of circulating through through Valverde, but also going to other West Denver neighborhoods or downtown. Very cool. Even though it's only three miles from downtown, to get there by transit, I think it's about 50 minutes. Oh, yeah. Working with Lyft and Lyme to think about how their scooters and bikes are placed and making sure their community passes, the ones that are discounted for people who are eligible are um, given out and people know how to use them. Dr. Mack is another group we're working with, the Denver Regional Mobility Advocacy Council. And they're doing training on all these new mobilities and they've been having a lot of success with it there are also opportunities to put in a pool of maybe e-bikes that can be collectively owned and borrowed or a loan to own program where people maybe get a small loan to buy a two thousand dollar e-bike from a local manufacturer fatty bikes right on federal Mm. and then that that bike is a true replacement for a car yep um it goes fast enough it's powerful enough you can go, you can park it anywhere for free. <laughs> yeah. And so then that would help that that wealth component. So not having to buy a car or maintain a car, having a, an e-bike that you would own that gets you to more destinations that you need to go to, including a job mm-hmm. or a healthcare appointment. Maybe even a collective ownership model of the micro mobility transit shuttle. Mm-hmm. We would run it with RTD the first year. And then depending on funding and how it works out, maybe if there need to be more shuttles local residents could either be hired to drive it or even to own it collectively and then putting in a micro mobility hub in the neighborhood so the city would build that some of the money we've allocated to have a community design neighborhood scale mobility hub so rtd's built one at the civic center that's their big mobility hub and the city's working with them to so it's a hub of all the transportation things to come together you can get on a bus there you can get a car share ride hail there you can um Colorado car share might have cars parked there you the scooters and bikes will be parked there but we also want it to be a place to kind of hang out like Mm -hmm. a community plaza yeah where more activity in the neighborhood makes people feel safer helps them to get to know their neighbors helps them to think of ideas of other things they want to see in the neighborhood
0: this is such important and good work, and as you're awaiting word um, from the NSF on whether this project will be selected for funding, you have not been sitting idly. <laughs> you've been very busy. This summer you've had several pop-ups in the park. Can you just give us a brief description of what the purpose of these pop-ups and what you accomplished?
1: So the way the planning grant worked is we had uh, $50,000 from the NSF to plan a much larger project, and we had about 14 weeks A little less, actually, (laughs) to like scramble during COVID (laughs) (laughs) to build out a really, you know, solid, detailed plan and get our civic and community partners solidified and really learn from them what they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And then we would also build up the research component so that we would all learn from it nationally and could repeat it. So part of that was in April, we held what we call the Valverde Movement Fest socially distanced outside event in the parking lot at the Peace and Justice for All Center, um, which is also where SEIU is located, the union. And we had story mapping and storytelling, story circles. We had information on the history of the community. We had food trucks. We had dancing. So it brought a lot of neighborhood residents to this parking lot. On a beautiful Saturday day, (laughs) Saturday, which we really lucked out that it was warm and nice. And what we heard from them, many things, but they wanted more activation in their neighborhood. They wanted to see more activity in the parks. It's a beautiful park, the West Bar Valwood Park. Mm -hmm. We wanted to keep our commitment of reaching out to people and taking so much of their time and finding out what do they want in their community and can they participate as a partner in this kind of active research implementation program. And so to continue to build trust with the neighborhood, both the leaders who are part of the neighborhood association, and then also just residents who live in the neighborhood, we decided to have events in the park. Mm -hmm. And so we narrowed it down. It was manageable to do four of them. Every other Saturday for a couple hours in the morning, each one had a theme. We had one on youth. The last one was on mobility. Um, There was another one that was just the annual neighbor or quarterly neighborhood association meeting. And, We had, again, we put up the story map and the storyline. And so the story map are these huge maps of the neighborhood. And people are given three green dots and three red dots that they then stick on the map somewhere. Places they love and places that need some love. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then we take notes and then we geocode them back. And then DU built this amazing website where you can move around the map online and see people's comments about these different sites.
0: That's very cool.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've been layering and layering all this data that we've been collecting since the April event and then the four Saturday events. You know, there are different people have different perspectives on the same location in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. or we see a lot of the similar issues that people identify in the neighborhood. So from a research and community building and trust perspective, we've met more people. We've learned more about what residents want in their neighborhood and what they already like. And we just feel, like I've, I myself, I feel like I just have a better sense of who lives there and what their days are like and how mm-hmm. long they've lived there and what issues have they been asking their council member or others for for years that are still not answered or what things they would like to be have done, but they weren't sure how to go about having it fixed. Too often, researchers, especially in urban studies, urban planning, and policy fields, we go into a community, take data, and we leave. Mm -hmm. And it makes it harder for the next researcher to go in. Yeah, Members don't always see the immediate benefit. They give their information, their time, Mm -hmm. their personal stories, and then... You're gone. Right, right. <laughs> so we really made a point while we were at these pop-ups. We had a banner made to be the Vel- – it was a Valverde Neighborhood Association banner they can use in the future. To make that the central sign at these events, my partner colleagues at DU, we both talked about should we wear our CU Denver and DU <laughs> T-shirts or anything or – and we decided, no, like, while it would be nice to show the universities care about the neighborhood. We wanted it to be for the neighborhood, not about promoting the universities or about the research, about just being there for them yeah. and letting them tell us their stories and what, um, what matters to them.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, unfortunately, as we all know, COVID is still affecting our lives. How has it affected marginalized communities?
1: Yeah, I mean, we all know from the news that persons of color were more affected, and, and we know that it's for a variety of reasons from the individual level, because they had health issues, they may live by you know, more highways that were put into their community, so they had respiratory illnesses, which made them more susceptible to more severe cases of COVID. So those are the individual things that I think we've most of us have all heard in the news. In addition, like the more built environment things about smaller housing units being more cramped, also working essential jobs, so they were put more in the face of being out with the public more often. Where many of us could stay in our homes and only go to the grocery store when yeah. we had to, where people have food delivered. What I've noticed over the those four pop-ups we had in Valverde is the kids in the neighborhood were really missing out on human interaction and activity. Like this last one we had on mobility, we also, DU has this big box of kids' toys. There's like a little plastic bowling game. And a small cornhole and (laughs) hula hoops and balls and chalk. And and then we also had a bike rodeo that the Active Living Coalition was running with Bicycle Colorado. Anyway, one of the little girls said to me, "She's like, what else can we do? Like, she just didn't want to leave. She was looking for activity, and she had tried the bowling. She had done the bike rodeo. Yeah, you know, there were a bunch of us from all the different partners. So a lot of adults just hanging out in the park for a couple hours, providing activities, conversation, listening to their stories, writing down what they were saying while they were putting their dots on the map, and um, yeah, it just seemed like." they were starving for more craving that interaction.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, I think people in higher income communities, they were able to set up education pods. They were able to have, you know, their community of friends that they knew that were going to be their safety pod. But if you're living in a community where not a lot of people know each other and there's people coming and going, or there's a sense of fear about getting to know your neighbors for different mm-hmm. reasons, or you have different jobs too, yeah. or you, d- you could not afford to pay the, Instructor who was going to teach the pod. They didn't have the community, the small communities, kind of those COVID pods, from what I could tell. Yeah. And so I think many of them, uh, at least the ones I were interacting with, many residents, uh, community members in Valverde, and the kids were, it seemed like they had been pretty isolated, especially if they weren't able to go to school.
0: Another initiative you're working on with some other local entities is a regional housing needs assessment. And I'm curious, what will you be looking at with this assessment, and how can the information you gather through the assessment benefit communities?
1: Regional housing needs assessment is a fairly common thing that planners and housing researchers do. Often it's done at the city or county level. We haven't had a very detailed one done of our region in a long time. What you do is you look at all the varied types of housing at uh, as small geography as you can, um, and that's your supply. Are there 50 apartment units on this parcel or is it a single family home? What does that home cost? Who can afford it? And then you look at the demand for housing, all the different household types. Is it a single person? Is it a young person or a retired person? Is it two people with one child? Is it one person with two kids? Is it (laughs) two people with no kids? So you look at the very detailed household profiles against the very detailed housing stock by location and then you look at the coming demand for more housing as well as you take out some housing because every year we lose a little bit of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets torn down or it deteriorates or it gets converted to something else. So you you do that math and then you identify like where are gaps in housing needs by type and location. What we want to do that's a little bit different than what's often done is use parcel level data and really look at the detailed information on each of those housing structures. That way, when we match it up to household type, but I'm hoping we can use the Census Data Center at um, Boulder, where you can get access to more of the protected data under strict um, requirements to really do that matchup and then bring in the projections from the state demographer. Okay. And then once we have that community mm-hmm. residents in the region can actually see these very detailed numbers and understand this gap we have in housing and why those numbers of, if we're building 70% of our new housing is all single family, and we're showing that we already have a lot of that. Yeah. And we have a lot of households that are one person, maybe two person um, who can't afford a single family home. Um, we hope just showing initially that math will be, um, The impetus for action, both acceptance by residents who are worried about growth and not sure we really need more housing production, and then for community uh, jurisdictions who implement the growth controls, zoning and, and building codes and other land use tools that shape what can be built in their communities so that they feel more informed if they rezone a section of their community to slightly higher density. They'll know why. They'll know the types of households that need that housing so it fits in with their community, uh, the way it looks aesthetically and contextually, um, and then to make sure they have the transportation in place so that people who live in the new housing being built can also have transportation options. The benefits to to the communities in the region is they'll have workers who live and work in their community at jobs that pay wages that are not high enough to afford a, at least not initially, a single family home. People are experiencing what that's like to have a worker shortage when they go to a restaurant they right? they go on a vacation in a mountain town, or they go to a store and for some reason the line, the cashier line is super long. Or mm-hmm. we're starting to see that, but there's been that for a while and at a smaller scale. Retail and other commercial in these communities have had a hard time getting and keeping workers. Yeah. And so maybe you know businesses won't go into a community because they know it's gonna be hard to get workers or things take longer to construct because the construction workers live in Brighton or Commerce City, but mm-hmm. they have to go all the way south past the tech center to build, and they can only take on that commute for a couple months given what they're being paid for the construction work. So then they try to find a construction job closer by, and now that developer down in that southern part of the region or elsewhere in the region is trying to find workers. Because there isn't a lot of affordable housing in that part of the region.
0: Yeah, right. And so
1: not only then does it mean you have high, you have employee shortages, but you also have more
0: traffic. Right. Are there ways that our listeners can support and or contribute to some of the work we've discussed today?
1: Yeah, I think people need to be more communicative with their city council members, their planning board members, and their reach out to their local planners. Pay attention if they're doing a community plan and they're seeking community engagement. Go beyond the word density as this evil thing (laughs) and really look at what soft density looks like, what missing middle housing looks like, and communicate to the people who represent them and make these decisions on what their community allows in terms of permits and zoning and that they're okay with it. Mm -hmm. They're okay with um, more housing in their community. If Again, is back to it. As long as it's well designed in the right place, fits within their community, but not in such a narrow way that it, that too ends up being expensive right. and out of the way and in the worst piece of land in their in their yeah. in their city <laughs> that's near industry and highways. And mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think we all need to be more open to seeing different styles of housing development in our communities and recognizing it's... Some of the the fears that we have that it might cause more traffic or that it um, just might not look right. People who live in denser housing do travel less because mm-hmm. usually that denser housing is put in a more affo- accessible location. And if they want to spend less on their housing, they often have to spend less on their travel. And so they're more willing to use public transit and bike and walk. So I mentioned that 90 unit micro unit building across the street from me and I I do not see a lot of traffic. (laughs) They get around by transit, walking, biking, and bundling their trips using Mm -hmm. their car when they have to. So greater density typically, if done well, does not bring a lot more traffic and it actually might reduce the traffic if if it helps with that jobs, housing, spatial mismatch. So the other thing that I've been spending a lot of my time on is the Public Schools Interest Group for the American Planning Association. So the American Planning Association is the professional association for our field of urban planning. And we've seen a really void in the planning profession of planners thinking about public schools. Mm. Um, And so we proposed to start a public schools interest group years ago, back in, I think it was 2015, It's still going. We're trying to get division status. We have to get 300 people to sign our petition. I run a listserv out of CU Denver for the group, and we're over, I think we're at 240 members of planning professors, planning students, consultants, public school district planners from around the country. We want planners who don't think about public schools, to learn about public school planning and why they are, where they're located, whether in urban or suburban areas, what it takes to build and locate a public school, what it takes to operate a public school, how the projections are done for public school facility planning, um, all the benefits public schools have to our communities in terms of community and economic development, all the other things those buildings are used for. And then we want the public school planners, because they work for school districts, they feel very isolated. And then a educational piece for local city, county, and state planners who don't think about public schools mm. and how uh, new housing development might impact the school district or how new commercial development might displace housing. But it's also a challenge yeah. <laughs> because it is, um, yeah, it hasn't been written about enough since I think the last time the APA did a schools report was the 60s. Oh, wow. 1964 or 9 was the last report from that association on schools. Oh, my. Um and every, every family, over about 67% of families use public schools, and every family that has a kid has to send their kid to the school. Very important. So it's important that planners start paying a lot more attention to them, their tra- transportation needs, their land use needs, just you know all the interactions with people coming and going and using the site and, and what happens there, learning and community programming. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you do very important work, and we're very grateful you're doing it, and we're also grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. So... Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for asking. See You on the Air is hosted by Emily Davies, produced by Kathy Buten, and recorded and engineered by me, John Arnold. Email us your questions and suggestions at ontheair@cu.edu. at cu.edu. We'll see you on the air next time. University of Colorado.